1: Uh, we are recording this episode on the 18th anniversary of uh, the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, and we have uh, with us uh, my good friend, uh, esteemed colleague and distinguished policymaker, uh, William Inboden. Uh, Welcome, William. Good to be here. Uh, Will is a uh, professor of uh, history and public policy at the uh, LBJ School and the University of Texas. Uh, He is the executive director of the Clemens Center for Strategy and Statecraft. Uh, He's also a uh, distinguished fellow uh, with the Strauss Center. And uh, in addition to being an accomplished academic, he's someone who uh, has had an extensive uh, policy career working on the National Security Council for President George W. Bush and doing all sorts of policy work since then. Uh, before we turn to our discussion... Uh, and, and Jeremy, you forgot to mention any former undergraduate and graduate school
0: classmate of uh, Professor Surry's. That so That is that true.
1: That is true. Yeah. Uh, well, one could argue that, that Will is just the person I followed around from <laughs> one place to <laughs> another, including London for one so summer right. as well. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but but before we get lost on okay. those stories, Will, okay. uh, we have a more. And I knew Zachary before he was a poet. So. <laughs> yes, it's hard to remember what that was. But speaking of Zachary's poetry, uh, Zachary, uh, you have a poem for us to start today, right? Yeah. What is the title
2: of your poem? Ghosts of 9 11 2001. Well, let's hear it. I wasn't there when two planes flew into the Twin Towers at 8 a.m. on a Tuesday morning. I wasn't there when my mother watched jet fuel rain fire from office building windows from a television screen in a Milwaukee classroom. And I wasn't there when they jumped from 80 stories up to escape being burned alive next to their desk like we heard about on the television screen in the history classroom with video footage from two decades ago. And it all seems a bit old to us, fidgeting at our desks, wishing we didn't have to hear about the smell of burning flesh. Watching as a plane smashed into a building that collapsed under its weight like Lego bricks. And I wasn't there, Ungrainy footage with cursing firefighters in the background who seem so old to us now. And I wasn't even breathing when planes blew up financial centers, dive bombed into the Department of Defense, and I wasn't even there when an explosion rocked a Pennsylvania field. And we just can't imagine it in the humid fly-swarming classroom 18 years later. We can't imagine what it's like to feel like you are under attack from all directions, to lean against patriotism when you don't know if there could be a bomb in the cereal boxes you pick up from the grocery store. And I read an article the other day about Paul Simon singing the Boxer on Saturday Night Live when they were still searching for survivors. And all I can think about is how those piercing la lies must have felt through the television sets. And what do you do when you are attacked by a bearded man 7,000 miles away in the Hindu Kush and almost 3,000 people die? And perhaps that's a good thing. Perhaps it's good to have known Iraq, to have known Afghanistan all my life. And I guess I can almost measure my age and the length of wars. And perhaps it's a good thing to have grown up patriotized in the Patriot Act, standing for the Pledge of Allegiance. To have grown up in a world where you have to take off your shoes to prove you're not hiding any blaze between your toes. A world where I watch my bearded, dark-skinned father get purposefully randomly selected at every airport stop. Where I now, as an adolescent male, have to get my books and my stuffed animals swabbed at London Heathrow like they're going to blow up the skies. And perhaps it's a blessing to have woken up in a minefield and forgotten why we have to get to the other side. That's a wonderful poem,
1: Zachary. Very what, powerful. What is what is the message of your poem?
2: My poem is really about what it's like um, to be uh, as I am in the generation that was born just after 9-11 and has felt the the ghost has been haunted by, by September 11th, 2001, but hasn't known it and has felt the after effects for so long and And in many ways, it's a very different perspective to think about it as someone who who is not didn't actually experience that event and it 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 makes one think about the path that we took as a nation afterwards in a very in a much more critical. But also much more truthful. Life.
1: Yeah, it's extraordinary. It's a it's a it's a memory that you don't have, but yet it's a memory that structures your life in every way. Will y- you your your career has in many ways been centered on on 11 Where where were you on that day? I was in Washington D.C. I had actually just moved there a week or two
0: earlier from Yale, um, so I was you know still unpacking boxes in my um, bachelor pad, rented rented apartment. Uh, I had accepted a job with the State Department, but had not started yet because I was awaiting the security clearance. And meanwhile, I was uh, working at the think tank, the American Enterprise Institute. And the morning of 9-11, um, my morning commute driving into the AEI headquarters would take me right past the, on, on Interstate 395, right past the Pentagon. So I had passed, you know, maybe 150 yards away from the south end, uh, south side of the Pentagon about a half hour before it got hit. Wow. So, of course, you have no idea what is coming. Sure. Um, but I remember the, the day for me is just a series of vivid vignettes uh, interspersed with you know, blurriness and trauma. So I remember sitting at my desk at AEI and my intern running up saying, hey, a plane hit the World Trade Center. Mm. And my immediate thought was, oh, maybe it was like an errant Piper cup um, and it was just, was just an accident. Right. And uh, a few minutes later, um, he came running up and said, a second plane hit. And all of a sudden, I realized something is going on. And then someone else said, the Pentagon's been hit. And so I and several uh, colleagues from the think tank run out to the roof of our building, which is just about, um, uh, it was at 17th and M, so just a few blocks from the White House and a couple of miles as the crow flies across the river from the Pentagon. And we get out to the roof and look across at, towards the Pentagon and see this big, pillar of black smoke unlike anything i'd ever seen in my life before it you know felt like armageddon Mm -hmm, or just something mm -hmm, really really apocalyptic mm -hmm. and and then um the the panic starts to set in because you wonder, what's next? Are we next? We had no idea at the time about Flight 93. Of course, now we know that that was going either for the White House and the Capitol and the heroic passengers um, who who rushed the cabin, uh, you know, saved certainly many other uh, innocent lives in Washington, D.C. I remember running back down to my desk and phoning my parents in Tucson, Arizona. Um, It was, you know, three hours behind at the time. Um, They had just woken up. They had no idea anything was going on. I remember screaming into the phone, like, Mom, I'm okay. Don't you worry. worry. Um, and she said, what, what What? are you talking about? And I said, turn on the TV. Um, and so that's how she found out what was going on. I remember going into Norm Ornstein's office, he's a you know congressional scholar at AEI, um, and sitting there with him and several others watching the TV as the Twin Towers came down, um, then kind of getting a sense that we needed to evacuate the building. And it was not ordered, but a number of us realized it, this doesn't feel right, safe. Right. Um, and you know, I ended up having several hours walk back to my place in Virginia. But remember, we're going out on the streets of DC, and there were literally thousands upon thousands of people on the street and no one was saying a word. Wow! It was this eerie silence. All you heard was kind of the clop, clop, clop of shoe leather on the street. Um, everyone was in shock. Um, some people are crying, you know. Some people hu- hugging each other, but uh, but we we were still in just this this very vivid it, literal state state of terror um and and uncertainty um so
1: yeah so those are my those are my memories of the day wow yeah. wow yeah. and and uh, how long did it take to get a sense of what had actually happened? By that evening,
0: I remember you know the long walk uh, home uh, that evening uh, gathering with several other friends at uh, you know my. Uh, bachelor pad and, uh, you know, watching the news. And by then we're starting to realize it was this Al-Qaeda attack. I certainly had heard of Al-Qaeda, knew who who they were, but had no idea that they'd be capable of something like this. Uh, And then I remember late that night or early the next morning, um, I don't know why this thing sticks in my head, Charles Krauthammer's Column comes up at the Washington Post, and it was headlined "This is War," right. and that's the first time it actually sunk into me that mm. there was this war dimension to this. Mm. I, again, it feels silly to say now that it sort of took took that long, but it, again, you're, sure. it's a terror attack. You just you, sure. you you have no category for something like this. Um, two other fresh vignettes for me uh, in the days and weeks afterwards. One was just the pervasive sense of terror that lasted for months, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, being afraid on the metro, uh, on the streets. I remember my first couple of plane flights afterwards. The other was the sense of unity and solidarity. Mm -hmm. Um, Very palpable, almost hard to describe now. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, almost hard to describe now in our very polarized and divided age. And the divisions, as as we can talk about, returned soon enough afterwards, right? But for months afterwards, everything from everyone having... American flags in the front yard and on their cars, um, strangers spontaneously hugging each other, um, j- uh, yeah, just a real sense of we as a nation pulling together. Mm-hmm. Uh, the political divisions just seem so silly and, and mm-hmm. irrelevant. And again, they returned soon enough. I don't mm-hmm. want to be naive about that. But um, uh, yeah, those, those two... Uh, kind of intertwined feelings of ongoing terror and ongoing unity and solidarity right. and how they coexisted. And of course, you'll remember, especially for DC, I can't remember the exact dates, but within just a few weeks of the 9-11 attacks, you also had the anthrax. Variants. Right. Um, Absolutely. Which again, we know now, or we seem to know we're just, you know, a a, a lone a lone wolf, a nut, nothing, you know, related to Al-Qaeda. Uh, fortunately, killed a few people. But going back to that feeling of terror, of, of course, oh my goodness, this is th- this
1: is next. Right. I remember um, being afraid to open the mail. And yeah. we were told I was in assistant yeah. professor in my first year then. Mm-hmm. It's actually my first week teaching American Foreign Relations. Mm-hmm. And I remember our being totally at some university circular at the University of Wisconsin saying to wash our hands after we opened our mail. Wow. And again, it sounds crazy in hindsight, but at the time that uh, it, it, made sense, that, right? That, that made perfect sense yeah, at the time. because
0: that's one of the perverse effects of terrorism, of course, is just uh, how it Permanent you know it alters your psyche. It makes normal daily actions and interactions
1: of human life so twisted and right. uh, and and risk uh, risk prone sorry right. yeah. and and in addition to being someone who lived through this uh, at ground zero in a mm-hmm. sense will, uh, and then someone who had to make policy in response to this, you've also done a lot of research on this period. What do we know now with the benefit of hindsight and research about what really happened on that day?? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm trying to think of what the what the main main highlights would
0: would be. I mean, obviously. One of the things that happened was it was a you know pervasive breakdown in our uh, certainly our intelligence and warning apparatus. Right, and the nine eleven commission I think did some really yes. really good work showing that. I mean, we looking back, if we had connected the dots, we we should have known a lot more. Uh, I'm not fingering any individual for blame right. there, but there were just some serious structural problems in a series of uh, series and of and similar band- to Pearl Harbor
1: in that sense. Yes, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, that,
0: exactly. Yeah, no, I think some of the analogies are are compelling there. Um, Certainly has come out just the radical uncertainty uh, and and terror that President Bush and uh, himself felt. Um Certainly, of course, has come out some of the difficult calls that Vice President Cheney made in the in the bunker there about giving the shoot down order um, for uh, you know we, we, we flight ninety three uh, right. right? Um, so some of the difficult calls
1: calls that were made then. Um, and just yeah. for those who might not know, right, the order was given that if there was a chance to shoot down that plane uh, before it struck. Yeah, an yeah a civilian airliner with right. innocent civilians on it. But yeah, our F
0: sixteen for were we're going to shoot it down. So um, yeah, uh, and then I do remember um, this has come out to give obviously I think think that as a veteran of the Bush administration, I'm hardly unbiased, right? And so I uh, certainly — and and by the way, I was not a main policymaker on the counterterrorism, so things I got right I won't take any credit for either. But um, I do think that um, some of the early controversial decisions the Bush administration made, for example, to go into Afghanistan with a light footprint, the special operators working with the Northern Alliance, uh, a lot of warnings that that wouldn't work or it's going to be a quagmire or, uh, you know, th- things like that. Um, and and that it was going to take forever to topple the Taliban. And, you know, there were some early uh, tactical and strategic successes there. Um, I do think, uh, it's, you know, it's come out that President Bush took some very deliberate controversial intentional steps not to demonize Islam. Right. So he goes to visit the Washington Mosque yes. just a few days afterwards. Yeah. Um, yes. He says Islam is a religion of peace and was really vilified by a number on, on the right for that. But, um, and that was partly his own uh, incorporation of lessons of history. He had read about and been very moved about the appalling internment of Japanese Americans after Pearl Harbor and did not want to replicate that with an entire class of American citizens, the vast majority of whom, of course, are very peaceful and and patriotic. Um, uh, So those are some of the, like I said, some of the, I think the the positive things that were, you know, difficult calls at at the time, but I think it's it's come out that there was careful delivery, Many others, of course, that, you know, would be less salubrious.
1: And and it should be said, uh, just building on on what you said, Will, that um, there was definitely an effort by the president at the time to... To uh, apply the lessons of history and really mm-hmm. try to limit uh, what could have become a, a sort of hateful set of attitudes towards uh, those from uh, the Middle East and those who were Muslim. Yeah. But there was evidence also at, at, in areas he couldn't control mm-hmm. that some uh, hatred was rising and that there were there were examples of violence towards certain communities. So you had sort of both things happening yeah, at the same was, time. Yeah,
0: and, that, and that's again one of the perverse effects of terror, uh, as well as just you know one of the you know the tragedies of certainly at least you know, some some people some people in America America America. I mean, I do remember this sort of sense in the weeks and months afterwards, is our country going to come apart over this, right? Right? I mean, will we really turn again? Fortunately, we we didn't. Fortunately, there was not a mass turning against each other. Um, But there were certainly
1: some, you know, different acts of discrimination and violence that Mm -hmm. were Mm -hmm. truly appalling. And and as a policymaker, we've talked about this before, I I, I think that experience that you just described so vividly um, stayed with you, right? Mm -hmm. When you and your colleagues in various places within the administration and And this would apply to people who then worked for uh, President Obama, I Mm -hmm. think, right? When they made policy, these memories and perhaps even these feelings... Yeah. we're there with you on a day-to-day basis right
0: yeah it's a it's a it's a very intensely personal form of learning quote the lessons of history yes. in terms of you are living your own personal history you're mm-hmm. remembering your personal history so it's not just the history that we study and teach about um, right. or that happened before we were born but it's the the personal histories that each of each of us bring and that certainly my 9/11 experience you know continues to shape my thinking about this but it, it, all the more profoundly for Bush for Condi, for Rumsfeld for sure. Secretary Powell for Vice president sure. Cheney this is not at all to justify every decision They made some of them. We know in hindsight were I think um, quite quite erroneous. But uh, but that was you know I heard this is not unique to me. I heard a couple of other Bush administration veterans say this. But essentially for President Bush and his senior team every day for the the next seven and a half years was 9-11. Right. Every day was 9-11 in terms yeah. of, you know, he knew as the commander in chief, this had happened on his watch and he swore, obviously nev- never again. Right. So, right. so if you want to at least understand the kind of existential mindset he was bringing to bear, that was that, that does not justify every decision. Of course, yeah. but it helps to at least explain it,
2: Yeah, right? Zachary, you had a question? Well, we're talking about sort of the aftermath of 9-11 mm. and some of the decisions that were made. Mm-hmm. What do you see really as the missed opportunities mm-hmm. in many ways of 9-11? Uh, but uh, but also the opportunities that were really capitalized on.
0: Yeah. Um, a, a few missed opportunities, I'll say, and I hope this doesn't sound too much like armchair quarterbacking. I will put a little bit of, of this on myself. Uh, some of these I've gone on record before. Um, so I think there was a, a missed opportunity to do a robust post-conflict stabilization reconstruction effort in Afghanistan. Um, I understand the original light footprint strategy it worked, but in the sort of 2003 to 2006 window, there was a missed opportunity Opportunity there And we're, we're still, I don't know that a perfect outcome could have been had, but it wasn't fully tried. That relates to the second missed opportunity and perhaps the biggest strategy was the Iraq war. Um, again, I'm on record as saying this. I was a strong supporter of the war at the time. Knowing um, on what we thought we knew at the time, I, I now think the war, war was a mistake. Um, and uh, I understand the mindset that went into it, but I think it was a mistake and uh, and contributed quite a bit to the the... Uh, the subsequent partisan divisions in our country. Those were already creeping in in 2002 with things like the Patriot Act and Guantanamo and and some of the other stuff, but that would be another one. Third missed opportunity. uh, This came up at our counterterrorism panel yesterday. Um, Three administrations now, Obama, Trump, and Bush, have all failed to develop a really robust Mm counter-radicalization strategy. Um, We've gotten very good as a country at killing and capturing terrorist, potential terrorist. Mm -hmm. We have not figured out um, how to prevent the radicalization process itself. And there's no, it's a very hard question. There's only so much a government can do, but Mm -hmm. that's another missed missed opportunity I would point to. And then finally, uh, I would point to the not so much the missed opportunity but the dissipated opportunity of the national unity we had yes, yeah. um, so that was it was so palpable when we had it and it's so painful when it's gone and there's plenty of blame to go around
1: on all sides mm-hmm. so. and and partisanship is as American as apple pie of course yeah. but uh, are there things um, that could have been done not simply by one side but mm-hmm. maybe by both sides of the aisle and by mm-hmm. people who were not very politically active that could have allowed that unity to last longer
0: yeah um, I'll, I'll say a couple Things I'll try to be even-handed about this, and again, obviously, all these things are complicated. Um, on the Bush administration side, uh, I think a two, a, a couple of related mistakes were not going to Congress sooner on some of the terrorist surveillance uh, mm-hmm. programs. Mm-hmm. Again, arguable about whatever your doctrine of Article Two and executive power is on if that was actually required. But prudentially, it would have been a really good idea mm. um, to to go uh, to get congressional authorization because they would have gotten it, right? Um, right. Especially for two hundred and 702 too, if we want to get into the legal stuff of the the Patriot Act. Similarly, in some ways, I know this is getting into much more fraught territory, and I'm still quite torn on this. But on the enhanced interrogation methods or torture, again, I know Mm -hmm. the terms themselves are are contested. Um, You know, when those were briefed to to the intelligence committees, there actually was bipartisan support. Again, I understand the mindset at the time. I mean, when you really do worry about the next attacks coming, and you're you're feeling this strong, um, strong sense of anger over that. But um, eventually, those became partisan issues and also moral stains on our country. Um, Likewise, I'd say probably with the Guantanamo facility. Um, interestingly, and Jeremy, uh, I've been doing a lot of talking, if I can put this to you, but here's here's my observation and then a question to you if you think I'm right in your reflections on this. Early on, the Bush administration did decide that the Cold War was the nearest approximation of a historical paradigm as far as long-term battle of ideas, kinetic dimensions, um, ideological dimension, um, some localized hot wars, right. you know, uh, you know we, uh, the need to create new institutions, all, sure. all that, so, so on and so forth. And I do think that one uh, very important part historically about the Cold War containment strategic consensus coming in was the fact that you had a Republican uh, Eisenhower following a Democrat Truman. Eisenhower runs against a lot of Truman's policies in the fifty-two campaign, then turns around and essentially adopts him yes. as president with, with some nuances, obviously. Similarly, I, I, I do think that the Obama administration, after criticizing on the campaign trail a lot of the Bush administration's more robust counterterrorism measures did end up adopting quite a bit of them. You know, he he did keep Guantanamo open, he still was doing renditions, certainly, you know, up in the drone strikes, things like that, as well as the overall legal framework, you right. know, kept the Patriot Act, things like that. And that did help some sort of bipartisan consensus settle in on main, maintaining a certain strategic framework instead of institutions for counterterrorism. Again, we could nuance it and quibble all, all sorts, but right. in the main, right. that's my take. Right. I, I wonder right. if you would see it uh, well, similarly.
1: i similarly i would I would say just building on what you said will mm-hmm. so well uh I think there was um, not enough work done to educate the public about these issues. Mm-hmm. And that's easy to say in retrospect. Yeah. And, of course, in a sense, it's impossible when decision makers are confronted with so many issues and under the kinds of stress that you you described. You gave us yeah. a wonderful window into how difficult mm-hmm. that life is. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the, one of the challenges that, that we have today uh, is we, we have a public that's probably as ignorant of, of foreign affairs and, and these issues as, as ever in our recent yeah. history, yeah. Uh, in spite of a ver- it being a very educated public. Yeah, and so I think there's I, I I think that's part of the issue, and I think many of the examples you were giving, uh, it's not so much which position one would take, mm-hmm. but can we have a robust discussion of this? And yeah. I think that really broke down during the Obama years, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps in part because of the White House, but also in part because of the way I think Mitch McConnell wanted to run the Republican Party and the Republican Party's position on these Plenty issues. Plenty of blame to go around, right? And know. so I think that's that's one of the, the one of the reasons the unity didn't last. I do mm-hmm. think unity requires a certain understanding and trust. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I did. So I will say, sorry, just because I went through a whole please, number of missed opportunities. Let, let me say to you know, to be even out of the record, and I've you know said this in other venues before, the fact that we're sitting here on the 18-year anniversary of 9-11, and there has not been another large-scale mass casualty attack on the United States itself since then is, um, I do think, a remarkable achievement, a very bipartisan one across three administrations of both parties in Congress. And again, I go back to the other palpable sense we had in the days and weeks after 9-11 was not if we'll get hit again, but when will we get hit again? You of just course. assumed it was happening. Um, and so the fact that that didn't is, is no
1: accident. I, so, I mm-hmm. agree. I guess mm-hmm. what what uh, is often hard for us, even as scholars, I mm-hmm. think, and certainly as citizens, and especially as young people like Zachary, mm-hmm. to understand is uh, how much did we protect ourselves and how much did we exaggerate the threat? Mm-hmm. And that's not to criticize people for exaggerating the threat. I think you've given us a very good reason to empathize yeah. with those who, including you and I at the time, will mm-hmm. were convinced there would be another attack. Oh, yeah. But but to what extent did did we perhaps exaggerate what might have been a somewhat diabolical but also lucky strike on the United States? On that yeah, day? that's. I mean, I don't want
0: to trivialize any of this, but but. Uh, Bin Laden and the 19 hijackers were incredibly lucky, right. too. Yeah, you know, I mean, um, in addition to a number of other factors. Yeah, and th- in some ways, that's an impossible question to answer right. as far as how much is the lack of another attack. A success of U.S. policy uh, contingent on that, or how much is it just the fact that the threat wasn't that bad after that after that one moment? And um, I still would lean more towards the former. I will, but it's it's an important debate to have. It's an important question for scholars to ask, especially now as we're in the moment where the new emerging strategic consensus is um, the, the the security environment is about the great power competition right. and you know, jihadist terrorism, anyway, is still out there, but is more of a second-order concern. Um, Overall, I generally share that consensus, but I do worry we might be overlooking the reemergence of ISIS um, and some resilience with with al-Qaeda, and I don't you know, I don't want to see any more of this, but all it would take is,
1: you know, they certainly have the intention to do another large scale right. attack. I don't know if they have right. that capability. Or, or certainly mm. a, a weak actor can still inflict a great deal of harm. Yeah. That's certainly one lesson that it seems is undeniable. Yeah. What are some other lessons from this period? Lessons as we think, you know, not simply about where we position ourselves in our politics, but mm-hmm. we think about our country moving forward. For Zachary's generation, many of them are listening to us. You know, what what what, what should they take from this as lessons? Yeah, I
0: certainly, I hope this doesn't sound you know, uh, too much like patriotic pablum, but um, I certainly came to a new appreciation of America, of our of our resilience, um, of the unity we're capable of as a, as a country, uh, knowing that that's possible, um, uh, knowing the fact that we were targeted rather than so many other countries in the world, partly because of our virtues, I do think, which are inimical to to the perverse jihadist jihadist vision. Uh, so, in, in that sense, it actually gave me a, certainly the Outpouring of interest in national service and public mm-hmm. service once afterwards, and that's not just about military enlistments, right. you know, right. of but course. Um, of course. Uh, it,
1: firefighters, for example. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, uh, policemen, educators. Right. It. It. It was a painful shock to the national conscience that also reminded us of living for something larger than ourselves. And uh, and I don't I don't want to lose that. I mm-hmm. don't want to lose that. I, I don't think we fully have. You know, that's one reason why you and I are so blessed to be uh, teachers here at the University right. of Texas, right, that's As right. we're reminded of that every day. Um, but uh, that was kind of dissipated in the 1990s. You know, we all were becoming a little fat and happy and lazy in the 90s. Mm-hmm. I don't want to overtake that too far. And, and the trauma of 9-11 also, uh,
1: you know, brought out um, the better possibilities. Right. You know? it, is there a way, you'd think, um, I agree with everything you said and said it so well, but is there a way perhaps uh, that 9-11 and our legitimate and empathetic mm-hmm. responses to it also contributed maybe to some of the xenophobia we see today and the obsession with keeping certain people out of the country that that seems to be part of our rhetoric? Or do, do you th- think those are separate things?
0: Um, I would somewhat say they're separate, but lest that sound t- t- too too ignorant, because as you know, I was emphatically opposed to that really awful Muslim ban that you know, just imposes about everything right. that Trump has pushed. But I do think that the impulses that candidate Trump was tapping into in 2016 were a little more of a recent vintage, um, uh, maybe targeted at some of the uh domestic uh, the, the homegrown terrorism issues we'd had with Orlando San, San Bernardino. Right, right. in terms of, these were not directly tied to 911 but rather to, to some of the more more recent ones um and uh, and I, I do I do wish. The Obama administration had been a little more forthcoming about, you know, some of the ideological roots. I don't blame them for the, mm-hmm. for this at all, mm-hmm. um, but also think that uh, certainly for some of the more nativist and xenophobic uh, elements, especially in the in the Republican Party. Um, uh, yeah, I was I was surprised and very disturbed at those at those elements, but I, I don't trace them directly back to nine eleven. Okay. I think they were a little more more recent vintage. But I, I I'm still puzzling over that, frankly. Right.
1: Um, partly because it was so shocking to me. Right. You know? It's just it's it's that's uh, a great answer. It's just mm-hmm. it's struggling. It, it, I struggle to understand how a party that was built around free trade and in a sense a party that was about. Uh, open movement of people and capital mm-hmm. uh, became, in a relatively short period, a, a party that that in, not just its leading figure, but many elements of the party seem to be opposed to those things. And
0: yeah, yeah, it's uh, our friends in the government department are going to have uh, <laughs> years and years of dissertations to produce in terms of sort of you know uh, how malleable is political identity and conviction right. and voting patterns. Right. Yeah, well, so.
1: well said, Zachary. Did you have a, a question that you wanted
2: to ask? Yeah. Well, uh, it's not really a question. It's more, I think, of uh if more of a comment i think it's it's really um it's really interesting to me how how formative 911 is to to so many things in our society uh and i i i'm just curious and 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 interested what both of you would say to the idea that what are the effects of of young people today being defined so much by 911 but also not having experienced it and what what new perspective does that give young people who didn't experience it in such a personal way? Yeah, it's great. I mean, Will, you work with a lot of
1: undergraduates mm-hmm. uh, who study foreign policy with you, yeah. but yet they didn't have this experience. They were barely alive. Then. Yeah, no, that's one of the ways I track the passing of time is, you know, each entering class in the fall, what
0: are their memories of 9-11? And look, you know, now we now have some freshmen here, you know, since his eighteen anniversary, yeah. you know, literally were born afterwards. Right, And right. certainly none of them will, will actually remember it. I guess I'll first say, Zachary, it is a... a I hope no future students will ever have a firsthand memory of something like this. In terms of, it's, it's a blessing mm, mm, to not have to mm. have a firsthand memory or experience of this, right? So let's let's be thankful for that. This is no excuse for historical ignorance. Of course, I want everyone to be able to know about it, but just as my generation was blessed to not have, um, you know, lived through Pearl Harbor, right? right. I mean, you just right, don't want right. to visit these these sort of traumas again. But it, it, it should still be studied, um, talked about, passed on. Whether uh, for the lessons about how horribly wrong things can go, for, you know, the lessons about um, the dangerous possibilities in the world, but, uh, but also um, how these things can be prevented and, and the virtues that can come out of it of, of national unity and service
1: and, and so on. So, um, yeah, it, it's, hard, it's hard to get the balance right. I think, I think there's a, a, a real blessing, as, as Will said, in not uh, having lived through this, but there's a real danger in it being important to our society and you're not having lived through it. The blessing is that uh, it doesn't define your generation. And I do think, uh, Will m- might not fully agree with this, but I do think that there's a more openness to people who look different and come from Muslim uh, communities among your generation, Zachary, because you don't have this image of uh, Muslim terrorists that, that, that we have, those, who, those of us who live through not 11. It's hard to avoid that, even though one knows that image is not representative. That image is sort of seared in our minds, mm-hmm. um, and that's not true. I find that's not true with my undergraduates. Uh, on the other hand, um, I do think, uh, and this is this is true for all kinds of actors, because it's clearly important to where we are as a society. To now we still have soldiers in Afghanistan, uh, we still have Guantanamo as, as a prison for those we 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 uh, we were accusing of terrorism and other other acts. Um, it, it, it's with us and because there's uh, questions over what actually happened for those who didn't live through it, it's malleable for political purposes. And this is not unique to 9-11. Mm-hmm. Uh, political actors will use historical memory to justify different positions and I do think uh, it's often maybe dishonestly used in our immigration debate, used in our debates about uh, who's an American citizen. Uh, to be very frank about it, I think the Trump administration manipulates the memory of 9-11 in inconsistent ways. Mm-hmm um but ways that I think can be powerful because of the ignorance that some have so so Will's final point I think was absolutely right being educated about this and hearing people like Will who lived through it but also have had the the good fortune to be able to sit back and reflect upon it
2: yeah well, i i mean watching watching some of the footage from 911 uh yesterday with you but also like in school i think it's it's really interesting to 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 sort of watch the footage because um at first it's something it's very it's very inspiring it's very patriotic and, and, it, and it and it's very emotional but at the same time it's also um in many ways very testosterone heavy um It's definitely gender. Yeah. And in many ways in many ways it's something that 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 in many ways I think added to the uh almost militaristic patriotism that I feel like is something that that we've seen more of. And I don't know if I would necessarily say that like the Trump administration has been playing off of the the after effects of 9-11. But I think that one of the real things that that Trump has tapped into is this sort of left leftover almost militaristic patriotism. Will, do you agree with that?
0: Yeah, I was, uh, in 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 part, um, I guess I'm still trying to get my mind around everything Trump is about because he's so full of contradictions, right? I mean, on the one hand, there's the militarism and the bellicosity. On the other hand, there's, um, I, I think, almost this over-eagerness to to meet with meet with some of the bad guys yeah, of the world sure. such as Kim Jong-un, As well as um, this uh, you know desire to bring all, all the troops home and I think leave us at a real potential risk well, in we Afghanistan need them to parade, and Syria. So, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah so maybe you want the 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 political <laughs> benefits and image of it without the the political cost and effectiveness of it. I also did want to come back to this question yeah. of Islam and the and the, the Muslim and xenophobia the yeah. there because I remember um, a few years ago I was I won't say where, but I was speaking to a large audience in a conservative rural region. And uh, one of the questioners, I was talking about counterterrorism nine eleven, and one of the questions had asked, you know, a rather piercing, you know, hateful question about should we just kind of get rid of all the deport all the Muslims? And and I, um, I, I respond by saying, listen, we, we need to say three things about Islam and terrorism. First. Yes, it is true that the terrorists who attacked us in 9/11, a number of others did it in the name of Islam. It's right. is a perversion, but we we need to acknowledge that and that a certain you know small subset of that of, of that that faith has been has been radicalized. So we need to be honest about that on their own terms. Second, how, and and he was nodding then. I right? said, so yeah. second, I'm not done. Numerically, and I think even kind of spiritually, the biggest victims of terrorism are Muslims. Sure. If you it just look at who the jihadists usually are targeting, it's other other Muslims. Sure. And third, some of America's most courageous, principled, important allies in the fight against uh, terrorism are Muslims. And I said, you notice why you won't hear many American veterans or troops talking about the Muslim ban? Because they've served alongside Muslims, right. uh, you know, courageous Iraqis, courageous Afghans, giving their lives to their country, giving their lives for a peaceful interpretation of their faith. Um, um, and we will not win this fight without them. Mm-hmm. And so, anytime I hear you know jingoistic uh, you know politicians calling you know Islam itself
1: is the entire problem, I just emphatically reject that. It's it's normatively wrong, but it's empirically false yeah. too. And, and I think that point yeah. about it being being empirically false is mm-hmm. one of the lessons we need to take from this: that yeah. um, there are bad actors in the world. They mm-hmm. look, they have all different kinds of sizes and shapes. Yeah. Uh, some are Muslim, some are white Christian American, some are mm-hmm. Jewish, right? Yeah. And uh, one of the things we've struggled with since nine eleven is sorting that out, mm-hmm. sorting out the bad actors from the categories, mm-hmm. which in some ways give cover to the bad actors, right? Yeah,
0: and in the last year, uh, just speaking of this terrorism thing in general, um, we, we're now having to really, as a nation, Wrestle with that. We need to shift our paradigm some on terrorism and, and we confront much more this very ugly white nationalist terrorism. Yes. Um was, of course. El Paso being the most recent example, but even if you look at just kind of FBI, you know, crime and terrorist uh, tracking statistics, they're now tracking larger numbers of white nationalist, uh, you know, terrorist actors than they are even uh, jihadists. And and again, I I don't want to downplay at all the ongoing threat, especially from ISIS and Al Qaeda. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, the only good news I suppose I can say there is at least some of the tools and methods we learned in fighting um, jihadist terrorism
1: uh, can now hopefully be effectively brought to bear there. So. And that's a great point that mm. the, the lessons... Of this historical experience, this traumatic moment that you described uh, so vividly for us, Will, there are lessons in there. Uh, first of all, in understanding threats, mm-hmm. but also in the different things we can do and mm-hmm. should do, and the things we shouldn't uh, do. Yeah. Zachary, is this something that animates your generation? I know you said today at school you had some conversations uh, about this. Maybe it's because you were wearing a yeah, hat.
2: I mean, so I, I really this. think that 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 it does, and part of it is just the the event itself, and it, it's it's very. Uh, it's, it's a very interesting dynamic to learn uh, about 9-11 in school because in school we're almost always taught about events that happened before our parents were born or about events in a very abstract sense. But when 9-11 is taught, especially in a very pragmatic sense, about the deaths and in a very emotional way, it's something that I think really touches people and kids and really inspires them, but also, also um, in many ways I think teaches us all very important lessons Uh, and I think it's really powerful and yes I think we can't we can't uh, we can't lose that opportunity as we move farther and farther away from 9/11.
1: Right, and uh, I think that's a perfect note to close on because so much of what we've learned in this wonderful conversation is that we're still grappling with this history. Uh, will said that so many times. Your poem was about that, Zachary, and mm-hmm. and it is the the willingness to revisit these issues, to struggle through understanding them, that helps to make us better. And it's why it's usually the next generation, your generation, Zachary, that actually will find more wisdom in this than we have.
0: If I can add one closing thought on, on, particular on that, it's my rough rule of thumb as far as when does something become history is usually about one generation, about yes. 20 years. And we're, we're just about coming to that moment in terms of that's enough time when we can start to have a little bit more of a dispassionate assessment, take a fresher look, see how the passage of time, what has transpired since then, practically more archives opening, th- th- exactly. things like that. And so, um, you know, it's, it's a rough rule of thumb. It's not finely calibrated. The point being, Zachary, we're just now airing the window when you and your generation can take up a new assessment of 9-11 as history. Yes. And I think there's a lot of new insights to be had there.
1: And that that history will make us a better country as we Mm -hmm. understand it better. Well, thank you for joining us, Will, and sharing uh, these very emotional memories with us. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's an honor to play a small part in This Is Democracy. Well, Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy.
0: This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the
2: University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.